Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We ask you to help us and guide us through this chapter as we, we look at it and, and help us to see what you'd have us to see from it. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 18. And starting at verse 1. Woe to the land shadowing with wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, that sends ambassadors by sea, even in vessels of bulrushes upon the water, saying, Go, you swift messengers, to nations scattered and peeled, to people terrible from their beginning hitherto, a nation meted out and trodden down, whose land the rivers have spoiled, all you inhabitants of the world and dwellers of the earth, See you when he lifts up an ensign on the mountains, and when he blows a trumpet, hear you. For so the Lord said unto me, I will take my rest. I will, cons will consider in my dwelling place like a clear heat upon herbs, and like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For afore the harvest, when the bud is perfect, and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he hath both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks, and take away and, and cut down the branches. They shall be left together unto the fowls of the mountains, to the beasts of the earth, to the fowls such summer upon which them and all the beasts of the earth shall winter upon them. I'm going to stop there. One of the things about this chapter, because I was trying to find out somebody who knew what nation this is talking about, either the land beyond Ethiopia's rivers or even the nation that was, that was destroyed, and every single source I looked said they don't know anything about this. So this is going to be a very interesting study because we're going to go with, we're going to try taking it as literally as possible and try to figure out place. What, what this unknown places are. Uh, but it starts out, Woe to the land, shadowing the, with wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Ethiopia and Cush are the same place in the Bible, which is to the south part of, of uh, Egypt, which are not on any of the maps I've given you. There's no major river in Ethiopia other than the Nile running along the side of it in its old days. And so I, there are people who say that this is referring to Egypt, but I really think if they were referring to Egypt, they would have said Egypt because Egypt was the major nation there. I read this, and I'm I kind of believe, and I look at this, is that they're talking about Central Africa, you know, beyond beyond the Nile, down down toward the bottom. And a lot of people don't like that because they don't really see much reference to Africa or or anywhere else in the Bible. These places were well known. They knew about Africa. They knew about they knew about the central part of Africa. They knew about China. Uh, China's been known to the world for a long time. It was just you didn't get there because of the mountains, and they had pretty much guarded the mountains so you couldn't get there. They don't speak that in the Bible. No, they don't talk about China in the Bible. They don't talk much about Europe in the Bible. So it's, uh, but it's only because the, oh, you do have a map that has it. Okay. <laughs> One of the maps I gave out at some point had, had Egypt. <laughs> That's right. I gave a whole bunch of maps out about Egypt a while back ago, didn't I? They knew the North Everything around the Mediterranean was very well known to them. Uh, up to the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, they understood those areas. Uh, 
the new India, India was ruled during most of the most of the period of time, and they were aware of China. But China, from India to China, is not easy to get to by land because there are just a few passes, and they're very high passes in the mountains, and easily cut off. And the Chinese were very private people; they didn't want. Right, and see, I went in and I looked on, on the maps and stuff and I don't see any major <laughs> rivers. And this is part of what they're saying, but Ethiopia was much larger then, so they might have gone down to the, the White River and everything you know, that is further, further down. So it's, and this is, what, this is why most people say we don't fully know where this is talking about. Now, Ethiopia used to be a, a very large expanse. It, when they said Ethiopia, they mean everything that we include in Ethiopia plus down into the very uh, northern part of Central Africa. So the Ethiopia Kush was a very large territory at one point in time. Now whether it was an empire or not or just considered, you know, kind of like uh, in the colonial days of the West, it's like everything west of the Mississippi, <laughs> okay, uh, was just a territory. It just, it's there. <laughs> So Kush kind of had that idea. Everything south <laughs> is, belongs to them. It, it didn't really necessarily belong to them, but it, to the civilized people in that area, they're going, uh, yeah, Ethiopia. <laughs> it's as far south as we go, and it keeps going. Who knows how far it goes? <laughs> and uh, this is why I'm really thinking that this is talking about that central, that central part of Africa. God has always been aware of all the world. God has always known what was going on. And Isaiah really is a book that talks a lot about how God was going to take and rule the Gentiles and, and be the God of the Gentiles. And I think that's what's going on here is God saying, I'm going I'm to tell you about the Gentiles that I'm <laughs> dealing with. And, they did, and I think the reason that there's no name in there is because there was no name to give it. Okay, it's just that land, that land beyond <laughs> Ethiopia. And this is one of the things when we look at sometimes in the scriptures and we go, they probably meant everything. When Isaiah gave this message, everybody probably knew, oh yeah, that, that land beyond the rivers of Ethiopia probably was a well-known, a well-known term. And, you know, for us in our day, there's going to probably be terms that we use that 100 years from now, 200, 300 years, 1,000 years, people are going to go, what the heck were they talking about? <laughs> You know, I, I read this. I read this line. It says, "We the people." You know, and you know what? What, what are they talking about? And they're going to forget that there was a constitution behind those words and and everything. They're going to go, you know, that little sentence. What does it mean? Because we have it all over the place in our history books without explaining the, that it's the constitution. Uh, and we get far enough away from things, and we can forget how they worked and what they did or what the term means. And even in our own day, language changes. You know, we've got so many words that, that have changed. You know, the, the, the word queer used to mean strange and odd. Now it, you know, then, then it worked, worked its way into being a homosexual. You know, and there's you know, somebody who was gay used to be somebody who was you know, happy-go-lucky. And now it refers to homosexuality. Uh, and even those are now starting to, to be pushed aside because they're now derogatory, you know, you know terms for homosexuality. So language changes over time, and it's important for us to understand that it changes over time. 
the word, uh, you know, all kinds of words that we have that have changed its meaning over time. Uh, because we think that they're so, you know, we think we know what they are, and, and sometimes the, the new generation uses them in a totally different way. And we hear their word and we go, I know it doesn't mean what I think because they wouldn't be using it that way if it meant what I think. You know, uh, I was listening to the radio and the guy, you know, said that, you know, this experience was dope. And I'm going, okay. You know, and they, and they explained it that it means that it was a, you know, you know, happy, easy, you know, good, you know. And I'm going, okay, that's not the way I would have ever used that word, you know. But, you know, so words change over time. We look at the word tolerance. And for anybody who's older, tolerance means that somebody has the right to be wrong, basically. I'm going to be tolerant of your right to be wrong. And nowadays, tolerance means that you have to give acceptance to that person as if it's equal to yours. And that's what tolerance means in our day. And so right now, the worst thing that you could be called is to be called intolerant. And Christians have gone from being the most tolerant people by the old definition. Okay, you're wrong, but you have the right to be wrong, and I'm not going to push it to Christians now are some of the most intolerant people because we're not going to say that what they're doing is equally right to what God says. So we've gone from being tolerant to intolerant. And I used to have fun when I was in the college because people, well, you're just so intolerant. And I go, yes, I am. I'm proud of it. Yeah, because they gave me the worst insult they could possibly give me, and I just said, you're right, and, and, and embraced it, just as Christians did in the Antioch, when they, because the original term for Christian was, you were just a bunch of little Christ followers, and it was kind of an accusation that, you know, you're just nothing but, you don't think for yourself, you're just Christ followers. And they decided, yes, we like this term. We, we want to be Christ followers, and they embraced the term and said, we like it. You know, you were using it as an insult, we like the term. So we want to be careful, you know, when we read it and we say, well, what is this here? Well, there may be some day when we'll pick up some parchment someplace, you know, some archaeologists will pick up some parchment someplace so they'll tell them exactly where <laughs> the rivers of Ethiopia are and what was beyond them. Until then, I'm going to assume that it's talking about Central Africa. Shadowing of the wings means the whirling or buzzing of the wings. So I believe it's talking about insects, which again makes me think about Central Africa. Uh, Central Africa has a lot of insects in, it, in, in various places. So these whole things on here, I believe they're talking about Central Africa. I'm not going to take a hard stance on it because nobody else has taken a hard stance on it. And, you know, and like I say, every place I read says, we don't know what they're talking about. But I do know where Ethiopia is at. And I know that it run, the Nile River running down one side of it and probably goes down to the white and black rivers further down in. And so you go beyond those rivers and you end up in Central Africa. So I'm going to take it for what it says. Probably the coastal part of Central Africa, but it could have been inward, inland. You know. We, we got to remember that people traveled further than we really think they did during those times. Uh, they've been all through Europe. They were all the way to, to China. Uh, when Babylon comes along in Assyria, Babylon run, controls all the way to China, all the way up to where, you know, all the way up through uh, Asia Minor, up into the, the south, southeastern part of Europe, all along the northern part of Africa. And they, all these places were known. These weren't 
you know, well, there's no place other than the Middle East. That was never, never the case. They always knew. Now, they, you know, there are barbarians up there, or if you look at some really old map, uh, there be dragons. <laughs> you know, you know, this is so wild that we don't go up there. It, it is so wild that we don't know what's up there, and we're afraid to go there. Uh, so that was what, you know, that's what I think they're talking about here. And uh, the whirling of the wings and the buzzing of the wings, I think it's talking about the greater amount of insects and stuff that they would find down there. Speculation, I know, but take it for what it's worth. It's not worth a whole lot. Uh, and then goes verse 2, that sends ambassadors by sea, even in vessels of bulrushes upon the water, saying, go, you swift messengers, to a nation scattered and peeled, to a people terrible from their beginning, beginning hereunto, a nation meted out and trodden down, whose land the rivers have spoiled. Again, we don't know what, what nation this is talking about. Um, could it be that they're talking about the central part where the rivers flood during the, the, the waters? And uh, it talks about the people that are scattered that have been, been oppressed, they've never been strong, and that could be just about anybody in any part of Asia, any part of the Middle East, because uh, uh, Egypt has been crushed at various points, and, and Philistines have been crushed at various points, and you know. Even the Egyptian, uh, the Israelites have been crushed at various points, even be up to this point in time when, when they haven't been se uh, sent around the world. Uh, it talks about vessels of bulrushes. I, I tried to look up this week uh, what, what nationalities used bulrushes, you know, bulrush ships. Almost all of them. <laughs> Didn't help me a bit. Uh, every place in the Middle East used bulrush vessels at some point, mostly Egypt and, and Ethiopia, and that would have then put them down into the Central Africa. But I, I was surprised the Norwegians used bulrush uh, ships, the Polynesians did bulrush ships, so it's, you know, I was hoping that maybe this would tell me something and it didn't tell me anything. <laughs> uh, but it's definitely a seafaring or, or major river faring people. Because uh, if you're inland, the, the Israelites never really developed naval skills, because they never had, they didn't like the they didn't like the Mediterranean, they didn't like the Indian Ocean when they got out there, uh, they really didn't even like the Sea of Galilee <laughs> because of the storms that would come up there. In the in the scriptures, when they talk about the seas, in the in the in the Old Testament, the seas are looked at as a dreadful thing and a thing of judgment. Every time they went to sea, they lost their ships at, you know, most of the time. And that's all they, all they really knew. Whatever, but they kept losing it. When they did go out, they lost. Uh, when Solomon would go out to India and everything to get his gold, he had to hire other nations to be his um, ship handlers. Uh, he would buy the ship, and then he'd hire the sailors from other countries because the Israelites never did develop. Now, I can't say none of them ever went out to sea, you know, but as a nation and a, as a group, they did not develop a seafaring uh, history. Uh, we know by Jesus' day that the fishermen went out, but even then, you, you see the glimpses that the fishermen feared the, feared the sea even, even then. They, they highly respected it. They did not, it was not someplace you wanted to be, and they, they didn't like the storms. 
and none, no, no person on the boat likes storms, but you know, when you're used to the sea, you're used to the storms as well. And you don't see that anywhere in the scriptures. And a lot of times you'll see them talk, and they'll use the, the sea kind of as a metaphor to troubles and trials and, and headaches. So be aware that when you're reading the Old Testament, if it, if it says sea and it doesn't seem to fit completely, it's probably talking about the trials and, and trou troubles that they're having. So, but it's talking about the people that use the ocean, use vessels to send messengers out. And it says God's going to send swift messengers to these people, these nations scattered and peeled. And again, it's not Israel yet because Israel hasn't gone into captivity. Might be the northern kingdom, but I don't know if this is, the book of Isaiah is not written in, in uh, chronological order. So it could be referring to the northern kingdom gone into captivity with Assyria because Assyria, the Assyrians did the same thing the Babylonians are going to do. They're going to take everybody and move them out of the territory they're in, scatter them around their, their empire, move other people from around the empire into the land that they'd conquered. It's a very good way to make sure that you don't have people attacking you from within because if you don't, if you don't, if that's not your home, you're really not going to care about it. Your home's five, you know, 2,000 miles away, and you're, and you're here, you're really not going to be too anxious to start a war to protect this new area that is not your home. You're there with a whole bunch of people that aren't family, aren't, aren't nations, and, just, and it keeps you from joining together as a people. So it was a very wise strategy to keep people from rebelling against them. You just moved them around. You know, and so you had a, a Syrian next to an Indian next to a Babylonian. And you know, so you wouldn't have a whole bunch of people of the same nationality getting together and saying, oh, let's throw off our rulers. Uh, you could still, it could still happen. But first, you've got to get over the language barrier, the culture barrier, the, the prejudices you have to, against these other nations. Before then, you know, get all done with that. Then you can go and attack the enemy who's, who's your common enemy. And so this could be any number of people involved on this. Assyria has come into power, so it could be any nation that they've, they've moved around. It could be the, the scattering of the, the nations of Central Africa. We don't know, but there's messengers being sent to them. And they're downtrodden. They're, they're uh, tri in tribulation. And the waters, they have some kind of flooding problems, which if you've been... In that day, if you lived near a river, you had flooding problems. Uh, even in our day, if you live near a river, you have flooding problems. And we're, we're more equipped to sandbag and, and make dikes and, and all that stuff. But we still get enough rain, have problems from water. And so we're, we're seeing a picture of this. And like I said, I kind of feel bad because I'm trying to research this and trying to figure out anything uh, that would make a lot of sense, but we're going to see God reaching out and saying, I'm going to reach out to these people, which is one of the reasons I don't think it's talking about the northern kingdom being scattered, because that was God's people. They would, it would not be a surprising thing for him to reach out to his people. And because the Israelites, remember the Israelites, when, whenever they thought of Gentiles, anybody who wasn't Hebrew, the only thing that they thought of is that all Gentiles were fuel for hell. That's how they looked at them. They were never going to be redeemed. They were, you know, they almost looked at them as if they, they looked at Gentiles as if they had no soul. They weren't even worth, you know, giving, you know, bringing God to. 
And I don't think they went quite that far, but that was their attitude. You know, Gentiles were created just to go to hell and, and you know, fuel, fill the fuel, fuel for, for, for hell. A uh, pretty sad look when there's one supposed to be giving out God and, and Isaiah keeps going, God's going to reach out to the Gentiles. Uh, I think Isaiah many times was not one of their popular prophets. Uh, matter of fact, at the end of his life, they, they put him in a log and sawed him in half. Uh, you know, so he definitely wasn't a very popular prophet, and his prophecies weren't probably not very pro you know, popular. What do you mean God's going to rule the Gentiles? What do you mean he's going to bring them all together? Gentiles aren't worth anything in their mind. So Isaiah totally doesn't agree with much of their doctrine. And uh, so he says, verse 3, All you inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth See you when he lifts up an ensign on the mountain, and when he blows his trumpet, hear you. So now Isaiah is saying, all the world. Now, how much of the world he's considering? I don't know. He said all. So I'm going to take him that he means all. And it says, see God when he lifts up an ensign. Okay? An ensign is a great big banner or flag, usually a big banner when it's the king's ensign. Uh, an ensign can be as small as a little pennant that is that is run by a company of soldiers to a huge banner that the, the king or the prince would have in the middle of battle. And his ensign would be where you would go. If you got into trouble, you would head for the ensign. Okay, it was standing up there, and that would be where the king would be. He'd have his, his elite guard <laughs> would be there. It would be the place where you would be safe, and the ensign was something that would stand out. And I think in this case, he's saying God's ensign is going to be big. It's going to be seen. I think it's more here where, that he's not at the end times, but he's saying, I'm going to be the God of all the world. Okay. okay. You Israelites, you, uh, we Israelites, we think we're, we're all it. But he's taking them back to, to Genesis where God creates the heavens and the earth. And everybody is Adam and Eve's descendant. I think he's saying... God is the God of the whole world, not just, not just our little group. And even in the churches, sometimes we get that kind of attitude. You know, just, just us, we're, we're happy being us. You know, we don't want the world to get in here and, and mess, up our, mess up our relationships. You know, we, we have, we have uh, closeness together, and we don't want anybody to, to disrupt it. You know, we do the same thing that the Israelites were doing. We may not be as dogmatic about the Gentile, you know, the, the rest of the people are just going to hell and, and that's where they deserve to go, but, uh, you well, know. That's our God, not yours. Yeah. yeah. Don't be messing with our God. Yeah, don't be messing with our God. So here he's saying, no, God's going to set up an ensign. You know, and an ensign is where you were, you were to go to, you were to be attracted to. In the middle of a battle, if you've ever seen any of the movies about the old battles where they're all on foot or horses, you know, there's always the big banners those are the ensigns, and they belong to the chief leaders. And you would know who you were going to if you, if you got routed, you know, your, your, your group is being beat. You'd, you'd make a beeline for the ensign uh, of, your, of your army, of, specifically of your nation, but at least your army. And that's what it's saying here. God is setting up an ensign, and he sets it up on the mountain. He says, God is going to put it up, and he's going to put a big ensign, and everybody, the world is going to see his ensign. They're going to know that he is their God and that he wants them. So he's more like, if, he's, if it is the future, it's more Calvary when Jesus comes and dies for our sins. 
to, and he says, I have come for the world, for God so loved the world. Not just you Jews, but yeah. the whole world. And so he's saying, this is our God. And he says, he blows a trumpet, and you're to hear it. Trumpets in that day were used for charge and retreat and call to, to, call to meetings. Uh, the Jews used them. The, the Jews had golden trumpets which would call people to worship or, and during the days of the exile would call them with a certain note would call them to pack up, we're moving, with another note, you know, go ahead and start strike, you know, uh, set up camp because we're going to camp here for a while. It was used to go to battle. Anybody who's watched any cowboy movies have heard the cavalry charge, you know, the, the trumpet, the, the bugle playing, and it was charge. Well, there's also a bugle sound that would say retreat. Uh, we don't usually hear that in our movies, but, but this is what this is referring to. God's got a call, that trumpet call. Listen to it and obey it. And even in the military today, they have, they have a lot of trumpets and, and, and sounds, probably not as much today with radios and all that that they used to. But it wasn't so long ago that everything was done by flags up, up, up on the mast or trumpets being, being there. The Indians used drums. The much of South America and African tribes used drums to communicate. You know, so these things have always been out there. Again, nothing new under the sun. These things are all there. But Isaiah's saying, our God is the God of everybody, not just us. And again, that's not going to make him popular with most of his Jewish, Jewish nation. What do you mean? God chose us. Abraham's our father. You know, we're, we're the special blessed people. And you know, God chose us out of all the people he could have chosen. And they were chosen so that they could give God's message out to everybody just as the church was taken out to, to be the messenger of God's grace to the world. And so we look at this, and he says, Hear, see the ensign, hear the trumpets. Verse 4, For the Lord said unto me, I will take my rest, and I will consider my dwelling place like a clear heat in, among the herbs and a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. And I love this. God says, I will take my rest. I, we want to keep remembering, God is resting. He has never, he doesn't strive. Uh, since the day he finished creation, which was not a work to him in the first place, he's rested. And he's at rest. You know, nothing is work for God. I mean, it's kind of like he created us as human beings. And if we had the perfect world that we're supposed to, we'd basically be playing all the time. We, you know, the, the, Adam and Eve got to play. They called it work, you know, tending the garden. And I've said it before, I wonder how hard it was to tend a perfect garden. Nothing dies, there's no weeds, okay? Uh, you know, all you have to do is, oh, I think I want a tree over there. <laughs> I think I want a flower over here. You know, you, how hard was the work? And whatever you planted grew. <laughs> yeah, I could probably enjoy being a gardener if that was the case. My black thumbs wouldn't be a problem in a, in a perfect garden. I plant something or even water, it's going to die. <laughs> so I don't touch plants. <laughs> I don't touch any of my wife's plants because I'll kill them. <laughs> uh, but you know, it says that God says, I will take my rest. And I will consider my dwelling place like a clear heat upon the herbs and like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest, which are places of comfort. He goes, 
the the dew on the the dew on the field gives the gives the moisture and just a cool place in in amongst the herbs, the trees, all that stuff. And he says, I'm a place of refreshing. And for us as Christians, God is our refreshment. I love the fact that I can all I have to do is hide in God and let him be my defender and say, God you 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 take this you take the storm you take the you take the trials you be my defender and all i got to do is kick back you know, i like to tell people at the prison that life is too short to have any bad days and they go well how can you have no bad days i go i don't let them get to me i let god take care of them i let god take care of the bad days you know cuz bad days are going to happen but you know our attitude is what is our attitude toward it you know when something bad seems to be happening to us, am I going to get all bound up, bound up and worked up? And you know, how am I going to get out of this? I'm going to go, God, God you're in control. You know, my attitude 90% of the time is, God, you're in control. I can't say that I do it perfectly all the time, but most of the time it's, God, you're in control. I don't understand what's going on, but you're still in control. I always say, usually, most there's a reason for it. And, it, and that works too. Yeah. But you know, if God's in control, He's got good planned for us. Everything is for good. We don't always know what it is. But you know what? It's not our job to know what it is. God is in control. And the one thing I learned very much in my lifetime is there's only one God and I'm not him. <laughs> okay? And I'm glad that I'm not him many times, you know, even though at times I wish, you know, uh, but you know, there are times when sometimes we pray and go, God, I think you should answer, you know, this is what I want and this yeah. is how I think it should be answered. Yeah. Uh, God never took any of us on as counselors. <laughs> he doesn't need a counselor. He doesn't need us to tell him how to answer, answer a, prob- a prayer. He doesn't need us to tell him that, that he f- lost his marbles for a little while and this shouldn't be happening to me. Uh, he's going, no, I'm God and I know what's going on. And, and, we don't. and that's just it. We, we need to get to that point where we say, God, I am not responsible for what's going on in this world. You are. And realize that because he promises that all things work together for good, and because he is a good God that cares for us, there's a plan behind everything that happens to us. It may not seem good at the time it's happening. It may not even seem pleasurable at the time that it's happening. But you know, one of the things I've learned over time is given enough space between a bad event and looking back on it, I can usually see the good that God had in store for it. You know, this made me more empathetic. It made me stronger. You know, how many times do we go through something that's really hard and, all, and we get back later on and look at how much strength we gained by going through the hardship? Now, the strength just gets us ready to go through the next hard thing we go through, but, which will be harder to give us more strength. But, you know, this is what God is saying. I am, rest. I am at rest. God is at rest. And he just says, rest in me. You know, he's the shepherd that leads us in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He, he keeps us. He protects us. And says, we've got a storm coming up, but I am your protector. I am your protector. I am going to take the, take the storm. And no storm is big enough to hurt God. And, and I've said this before, you know, if you're in the middle of a storm, this kind of a building is a pretty good building in. It's got the cinder blocks all around it with the rebarb in it. It would take a pretty bad storm, you know, to take this building apart. And if we're in that bad a storm, we're in trouble anyway. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, it would be a hurricane or, a or actually probably be a tornado that would take this building apart. But you know, if we're in a place, this is the way we'd want to be. Yeah, we'd want to be in a building like this. Well, we want to be in, as Christians, we want to be hiding in God. He is a building that will never be affected by any storm that comes our way. And that's why it's so important to be able to rest and say, God, you're sovereign, you're in control. And the more we believe it, the more at rest we can be. Because Jesus paid the debt and we're hidden in Jesus. We're hidden in Jesus. Jesus is hidden in God. So we got double protection no matter what comes our way. Nothing comes our way without God's permission. And that is a great comfort to me. Nothing. No matter how bad it seems in my life, surprised God. He allowed it. I may not understand why he allowed it, but he allowed it and he is in control. And when we have that attitude, life becomes pretty simple. Okay, God, don't really know what's going on. Don't really, you know what? But I'm not God. I'm not going to care. You, you, you've promised it's for good. You've promised that you're in control. And as long as we believe those two things, we'll be, we'll be able to go through anything that comes our way. And here he's saying, God rests. God rests. Yeah, and that's kind of quite an impression. All, God, you know, God is resting while he holds the whole world together. God is resting while he has a plan for every single person that's ever lived in this world. God is at rest while he allows Satan to try people. <laughs> and he says, well, I'm just, I'm just, I know what's going on, so I'm, I'm just resting. It's not bothering me. And when we get to the place where we can rest in God, life becomes pretty easy. You know, and hopefully you've been there where you've just rested in God for periods of time and you're saying, yep, I, I, know, I know what it's like. I'm rest, resting in God. Sometimes when we're resting, all hell breaks around, loose around us and we, don't, and we barely notice it because we're hiding in God at rest. When we're in trouble is when we're outside in the storm trying to fight the storm on our own. You know, then it doesn't take much of a storm to knock us over. Now, how many of us have gone out in a 30 or 40 mile an hour wind around here in Mojave County and, and kind of got pushed around a little bit or worse yet, driving and got pushed around a little bit? You know, uh, if you were in a nice dirty building, you don't get pushed around by the wind. And this is the way God's saying, stay inside me. Stay inside me and quit going out in the storm. Quit thinking that you can go tackle the devil on your own. You know, every time we think we can, we can be victorious, we get beat up. Bad. I've done it many times thinking, oh, I, I'm strong enough. I've been, I, I can handle this and come back pretty bloodied and bruised up and saying, God, yeah, let me back in. I, you know, I, I need to hide for a little while. Uh, verse 5, for, for before the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening in, in the flower, he shall both cut off the sprigs with the pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches, they shall be left unto the fowls of the mountains, to the beast of the earth, and the fowls shall summer upon them, and all the beasts of the earth shall winter upon them. Here I think he's making, a, making an attack against Israel who thought they were the center of everything. And, God, and I think Isaiah is saying, he's going to cut away all, all, you know, all that you think you are. You know, how many times do we sometimes in our life, you know, God, I, I've got my whole life got to get, uh, put together, and God says, okay, let me just chop off a few of, this, few of your self-righteous works and let you show you what you really are. And we've got to be careful. Whenever we think we're something, 
God will show us that we're nothing. And it's very humbling. You know, we would think sometimes, God, I would never fall in sin, into sin in this area. And as I've said, if you have an area of your life where you don't think you're going to fall, be careful because that's exactly where you're going to fall in. And this is what I've said about many of these televangelists who have you know, fallen into fornication and adultery. Most of them, I could guarantee, would have said, you know, I love my wife so much and I love God so much, I would never have an affair. And soon enough, they f- don't put the guard on there. They're hanging out with women when they shouldn't be. They're doing things they shouldn't be. And next thing you know, they're committing adultery. I remember when you said never say never. <laughs> well, that's just it. You know, and I've, said, you know, I've told you all, when I was a teenager, if somebody would have told me that I would have been away from the church for any, for any length of time, I would have said, no way, you're absolutely nuts. I would never not go to church and started working, got, became a workaholic, started working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, you know, just so tired I didn't go to church and before long. I hadn't gone to church for four months. Uh, you know, and then it turned into two, almost a year and a half before I finally went back to church. But if you had told me as a teenager that was going to happen, I would have told you absolutely no way. Absolutely no way would that ever happen to me. So I learned the hard way. You don't, you don't have any part of your life where you can say, never, never happen. And the very area that you think will never happen will be the part that you don't put a guard on because you think it's so strong that it will never fall. And because you don't have a guard on it, it'll be taken down. Satan will dig, dig trenches around, your, around the walls of that area and bring them down and bring just the right temptations in to make us fall. Whatever that temptation might be, whatever your area is that I would never, uh, I, would, I would probably never drink. But you know, I would never say that I'd never drink. I have no desire to drink. Most drinks would never be a, be a temptation to me. Can I imagine some scenario where it could possibly, you know, sound good? Well, I never thought that I would ever walk away from the church, so I will never say that there isn't some scenario that would be, I've just had enough bad days in a row and gotten away from God's word and just in the right place, you know, committed, you know. You never know. You never know what can take you down that path for what you think would never happen to happen. And, you know, we've got to be careful with it because God tells us without him, we can do nothing anyway. Okay? But in him, we can do all things. We can be victorious in him. Without him, even our strength is going to fail. And we need to be very careful about this. Uh, Very careful. And and also, if we keep the right attitude toward it, it'll keep us from judging other people. How can I judge somebody else who falls? Number one, I don't know how long they stood. You know, these televangelists that have committed these fornication acts or adultery act, I don't know what it, you know, how many times did they say no? You know, how many situations did they pass through without ever falling and then they fell? You know, maybe it was the 500th time that they fell. And all we look at is, what an awful person. Look at that. They, you know, they gave up everything they, that they believed in and fell. Well, we might have fallen years ago if we were in their shoes. Yeah, and this is why we need to be careful as Christians that we do not attack other Christians who fall. Number one, even if they're weak, it doesn't matter. It's, they need to be built up and, and edified and called back to God. If they were strong and fell, then... 
then we need to be careful too because we would have fallen long before them probably. You know, we need to love one another and just encourage one another because God is going to accept them. Once they repent, they're going to, God's going to take them back. He, you know, that's the story of the prodigal son. Went out, wasted all of his money, came back, you know, just make me a servant. Just make me a servant. And that's what we would expect God to do to us. You know, God, I, I messed up so bad. Just make me a servant and I'll do whatever you want me to do. And God says, no, you're my, you're my, you're my son. We're going to have a party. You, my son has returned. My daughter has returned. And not, okay, you're right. You're going to be a servant. You know, when you've proved to me that you can be a good servant, we'll make you a child again. That's not God's attitude. And I'm glad it's not his attitude because I fail way too much to have to go back and, and be a servant and try to prove myself to God because I would never be able to do it. And God is saying, I'm, you're my child. I'm going to take you back. I'm going to accept you. And it says here, and I, this is why I believe it's talking about Israel. I'm going to prune away. You think you're something Israel? We're going to prune away all this fruit, and we're going to let the, the Gentiles, the, all those dogs, all those animals, live on what you've been rejecting. What you've been rejecting. How many times does God give us a blessing, and we basically ignore it? Because it's not the blessing we wanted. God, uh, I wanted the Viper car, and all you, all you gave me was a Mustang. <laughs> you know, not that I want a Viper. I'd actually want the Mustang, but... I want a truck, and you gave me the minivan, or I wanted a truck, and you gave me a, you know, an SUV. You know. <laughs> but, you know, how many times do we do this kind of stuff to God? God gives us a blessing, and we look at it and say, God, it's not really what I wanted. You know, and God's saying, well, it's what, I, what you needed, and it met your need. You know, and we kind of, oftentimes we do this. We get, God, not really what I wanted. You know, and God says, well, didn't I meet your need? Well, you know, my favorite story I like about George Mueller, he's praying for the breakfast, you know, and what do they get for breakfast? Milk and bread. Mm-hmm. Probably not the world's best breakfast in the world, but it was a whole lot better than what they had before he prayed, nothing. which was nothing. Yeah, okay, so we need to be careful sometimes that we don't overlook the blessings of God and say, God, it really wasn't enough or it wasn't what I wanted. The Israelites did that. God fed them with manna every morning in their wilderness, and they started complaining, God, we're tired of this manna. This manna only gives us the strength that we can walk in the desert all day long and our feet don't swell and we don't get fat, we don't get you know, skinnier. You know, it gives us all our nutritional needs, but God, we don't want it. You know, we, want, we want quail. We want leeks and onions and cucumbers like we had in Egypt. You know, we, you know, we tend to look back even as ourselves as Christians. God, uh, I'm just not happy with you. you know, I remember back before I was saved, I had all this stuff that I didn't like back when I was, before I was saved, but it sure looks good now that I'm on the other side and away from it, you know, and I want that stuff. I want that stuff, but I want it to fulfill me because you're in it. And God's going, no, it didn't fulfill you before. It's not going to fulfill you now. I've given you what you need. And yet, oftentimes, we are not thankful for what God gives us. And if we can't be thankful for what God gives us, he's never going to give us more. Because the more can take us away from God if we're not being thankful for it. 
And I have seen that happen over and over again where somebody gets great blessings from God because they start out thankful. And then God gives them blessings. And before long, you're going, where's so-and-so? Well, they're up at their cabin up in the mountains or they're down at their, their beach house or they're on their boat or they're, they're on vacation because they got so much money and, and time off that they you know, are never home anymore. And you're going, okay. You take the blessings of God and use them on yourself. And people do that a lot. And sometimes I believe that's why many Christians aren't really blessed because God knows that they would not use the stuff correctly. They would use it, on, use it for their own consumption. And it doesn't mean we can't use any of God's money for ourselves. He's, he gives us that, but he's saying, are you going to be faithful with what I've given you to honor, honor me? And the sad thing is that the poor are more likely to tithe to God than the rich, according to every statistic. And in one sense, that makes sense. If you, your, your tithe is only $20. You make $200 a, a week and your tithe is 20 What can you really buy for $20? If you've got a lot of money, you make $5,000 that, that week. Your tithe is $500. Okay, what can you do with $500? But you know, if you gave you $500, you still have 95% left, just like the person who gave away the $20. Yeah, you still got 4500 bucks to spend. Yeah, but you know... I understand on one side it becomes a little harder. I mean, I've written some of those big checks. Got, you know, God, there's a lot I could be doing with this check, but it's going to you. <laughs> you, you want this check, it's going to you. And, but you know, this is what God wants us. Are you going to be resting in what he has given us? Are you going to say, thank you, God, for whatever it is that he's given, or are you going to go, God, I want more? And it's really hard for us as Americans because we always want more. If you go anywhere else in the world and you got any breakfast, you'd be happy about it. In America, if God provided you a bowl of rice, most people are going, what is this? This isn't breakfast. In many places, that's breakfast and lunch and dinner. Uh, you know, a little bowl of rice. And a, you know. Yeah, it'd be a little. You know, it'd be an be ice cream scoop full of rice and that was your meal. Maybe a big ice cream full of rice, but that's your meal. And if we got that in America, we'd be going, uh, no, God, this, is, this isn't a meal. I want my eggs and bacon and my cereal and my toast and my orange juice. And lunch, I want my two or three sandwiches and my chips and, and dinner. Oh, my goodness, Americans got to have, have our meat and potatoes and vegetables. And you know, My dad, when we lived in Scotland, was trying to get, steak, get the butcher to cut steaks. And he wanted... American steaks, and the butcher just couldn't get it, th you know, couldn't get it through that he wanted an American steak, you know, like a half inch, inch thick, you know. <laughs> that was just extravagant waste to, the, you know, to, to somebody in Scotland. And, uh, but you know, that's the way we as Americans think. And we sometimes overlook the blessings of God just because we don't see them as blessings, because they're not what we wanted. And sometimes our wants can be a big problem for us. People go to churches, and you know, I talk to a lot of people. Well, what church you go to? Well, you know, I haven't found one. I haven't found a good one. Well, how long have you been looking? About ten years. <laughs> and uh, it's like, okay, are you looking for a perfect? Church? I'm looking for just the perfect church. I'm going. You won't find one. You know, talk to God, ask Him what church you're supposed to go to, and go to it. You know, I've done a lot of moving in my life. It's never taken me ten years to find a church. <laughs> It usually hasn't taken more than, more than a month before I find a church that God says, this is your church to go to. 
Why? Because I'm looking for the church that I can go to to be a help, help out. Because I don't want to try to find a perfect church because even if I, even if I managed to find a perfect church, I couldn't join it because I'm not perfect. <laughs> Yeah, if I went there, it wouldn't be perfect anymore. And it's not perfect anyway, because they're not perfect. So, but it is, what are we looking for? Are we looking for a place to serve God? Or are we looking for the place that meets all of our needs? Well, God, it's got to have this as its music, and the pastor has to be this kind of a pastor, and it's got to have this ministry and that ministry. You know, when I moved to Kingman, I went to a church, and there was only one thing I didn't like about it. It didn't have a youth program, and I had three, teen, uh, two teenagers at the time at home. And you know, I, I went to the pastor and I go, Pastor, I think God wants me here, but there's only one big problem I have is that we have no teenagers. And he goes, Well, if everybody takes your attitude, we'll never have teenagers. <laughs> it was quite wise. <laughs> and about a month later, another family moved in, and we now had four teenagers. And very shortly, they had about 20 teenagers. Okay because they started working a teenager program. But you know, I could have left the church that God wanted me at because they didn't have everything that I thought they needed to have. And we need to be careful about that. Are we where God wants us to be? Or are we looking for something better? And we need to be careful too because sometimes we'll stay someplace that God is saying, not stay. <laughs> you know, because he says, it, this isn't the place for you. And it could be a really good church, and it's just not the place. And so we need to be listening to God and saying, God, what is it you want? Where am I to be? What is, because God could have just as easily said, don't go to this church, because you're right. You need to go someplace where they've got teenagers and, and your kids can minister. But I took the pastor at his word and everything else. You know, I really felt that that was supposed to be my church. I just had the one concern with, with my teenagers. And God worked that one out. You know, and if there is a concern, God will work out that concern. And if it's not the right place, he'll work it out. But we need to be able to say, God, where is it you want me to be? Not where do I want to be? Because God says, I want to use you here. You're, just, you're, the, you're, the, you're the, the person who's going to help get things rolling. And God used me in that church in many, many ways to help get some programs rolling and everything. And then God called me from that to here. But you know... Where does God want us? That's not easy sometimes. <laughs> it's not easy sometimes to figure out, am I where God wants me to be or not? And it's a step of faith in most cases. God, I just, this is where I think I'm going to stay. I think this is where you want me to stay. I'm going to step out. And then when God brings the blessings, you know you make the right decision. And he gives you the peace that you're in the right place. And if he doesn't give you the peace that you've stepped out in the right direction, you'll have to say, OK, God. You know, Take me, take me to where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> and the most important thing is, are you going to grow? Are you going to grow where they're at? And for me, pretty much any church, as long as they're a Bible-believing church, I could fit in. You know, uh, not all of them, but most of them, <laughs> I could fit in. And because God would use me to do something there. And this is what we want to be able to look at as we go forward on this. Verse 7 says, In that time shall the present be brought unto the, the Lord of hosts, to the people scattered in his field, and from a people terrible from their beginning, hitherto a nation meted out, trodden underfoot, whose land the rivers have spoiled, to the place of the name of the Lord our God, the Mount Zion. And in this case, I think we're going to the future again. 
okay? There's going to come a time when God's going to gather everybody scattered everywhere and say, Mount Zion is the place you're coming. Israel. Israel. Yeah, Jerusalem. Yeah. All right? And all through the millennial kingdom, everything is centered in Jerusalem. And if you read Isaiah and Ezekiel and all these guys, they seem to talk about the new heaven and earth also centering around Jerusalem, which we know there's a new Jerusalem going to descend from heaven, which will be the center of everything. And it talks about commerce and everything going back and forth into, into the new Jerusalem. You know, God has chosen Jerusalem to be his headquarters, home, however you want to look at it. And why he chose Jerusalem, I don't know. He did. <laughs> Satan has chosen Babylon as his, as his seat of power. And in the book of Revelation, it talks about him setting up his kingdom in Babylon. And this has been Babylon ever since Nimrod started the city way back in Genesis. And Nimrod is the founder of all the false religions out there. He's, everything works back to him. Actually, Satan, but he's the one that popularized it. And we've talked about during that period of time, you had Eber running the, you know, standing for God, and you had Nimrod standing against God. Great battles between them as they're fighting spiritual battles. Uh, and Abraham, descendant of Eber, leaving the Babylonian area, the Ur of the Chaldees, to go to the, uh, to the Promised Land. Okay, and starting up a whole another, another line of, of God. So lots of things going on here, and it says, so yes, this last verse of it, I think, is definitely going back to the millennial kingdom in the future. All the nations are going to be gathered back to God, all of them. You know, and this is so important for us to understand, you know, in our world today, and all through the past, for that matter, Satan has tried to divide people by races, by, by ethnicity, whatever divisions he could come up with, God's plan has always been to bring everybody together. He created one people. Every single one of us have two descendants, uh, three descendants that we can know are our descendants. Adam and Eve, and Noah and his wife, so four. We just don't know his wife's name. You know, we're all related to those, those four people, period. Because if you're not related to them, you're not human. Okay, uh, and everybody, everybody who's walking on two legs with uh, arms that can have, a, have an expression and a spirit in them as a human being. There's no non-humans in this world. And we know that DNA is proving it, proving it now that we're all descendant of the same mother and father originally. So we know that that's a true statement. We all have the same founding parents. So in essence, everybody you meet is a relative. Maybe a very long distance relative, but they're all relatives. <laughs> no, that wasn't nice. <laughs> we're, all, we're all relatives we like and relatives we don't like. So and we, we have a whole, whole world full of relatives we like and don't like, you know, but they are relatives nonetheless. And no matter how different they look from us, 
the same blood is underneath it. The same DNA is underneath it. We all have red blood, so that's all. We're all part of the human race. The only thing that truly separates us is do we know God or not? Are we God's children or not his children? And in one sense, we're all God's children, but you know what I mean. Are we in Jesus Christ? Are we literally one of his children? Or are we destined for hell because we've rejected Jesus Christ? Those are the only two races there really are. The one that's going to heaven and the one that's not going to heaven. And so we need to be able to see this verse ended with God's going to lift up the ensign called the Gentiles. So almost he's saying he's going to Calvary <laughs> on, this, on this chapter. And then at the very end, he's going to the end time saying, I'm going to bring everybody to me. Everybody. And at the white throne judgment, all the world will stand before him in judgment. Now the Christians will be in our glorified body, will be judging at that point. But the lost world will all stand before God at the white throne judgment. And God at that time will show them every time they rejected Jesus Christ and God. And when they go into hell, they will go into hell knowing that they're getting what they deserve. Not with any argument on their, on their tongue, you know, well, I, I never knew, I never, I never knew that I was bad, I never, you know. The worst person knows that they're bad. Knows that they're bad. Now they may sear their conscience, but at one point in time they knew that what they were doing was wrong. Now they can do it so much so often that they can sear their conscience and no longer recognize that it's bad, but God's going to take them back to the beginning and say, you knew it was bad. You knew that it was a sin. You're guilty. You've rejected me. There will be nobody without excuse when they get sent to hell. Our job as Christians is to give the gospel message that they are sinners, they, that God is going to punish them, and Jesus died for their sins, and they need to accept, you know, repent from their sins and accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior so he can come in and cleanse them. You know, that's our job. You know, otherwise, we wouldn't be here. You know, if, if we didn't have a job to do to spread the gospel, then as soon as you got saved, you'd go to heaven. I don't know how the next person would get saved, but, you know, uh, that would be for God to figure out. <laughs> Angels could do it or whatever, but you know, if he gives us a job and that's to tell others about the love of Jesus Christ. You know, that God loves you so much that he died for you. You couldn't pay your sin, so he paid it. He paid that sin debt so you could go to heaven. And that is a humbling thought. No matter how good you may think you are or how bad you think you are, you don't deserve heaven. You know, especially for those who think they're good. The Pharisees amongst, you know, among us that think, you know, oh, I'm just so good, I deserve to go to heaven. I, you know, I try to do good. And God says, you're not good enough. You're not perfect, so you don't deserve heaven. We need to really keep that in mind. None of us deserve heaven, and nobody that we talk to deserves heaven, so it puts us on equal, equal plane. We all need Jesus. Without Jesus, we won't, we won't make it. Now, that doesn't mean that God won't elevate people after they're saved and make some people a little, you know, little more authority and, and everything. But at the foot of the cross, we're all sinners that need the cross. We're all sinners that need Jesus. As we mature, God will give us an opportunity to, to move up and get some authority and, and have a higher place in heaven and whatever else that means because he told us he's going to give us rewards. You know, the greatest reward is heaven. You know, you, you make it into heaven, you've got the greatest reward. 
uh, you know, you might want the penthouse at the top of <laughs> top of the heaven, but you know, <laughs> but but getting in getting in is the first part. But you know, the thing we got to keep in mind: God does not judge us all the same. If you've got one gift and you use that gift 100%, you're doing a much better job than the person who may have five gifts who uses one of them because they're never reaching their potential. And when they stand up there, they'll be like the guy with the talent saying, uh, well, God, I just hid these talents. I didn't use them. And God says, take it away from them. God praised the widow who threw in two pennies <laughs> because he, he said she gave all that she had and he compared her to the people that were throwing in probably like thousands of dollars and said, they just threw out, out of their wealth. They're not even going to miss what they gave. You know, they're the ones making $10,000 and they throw in a, a thousand or two and, and God's saying, what's that? And they're not even hardly going to miss it. You know, barely miss it. They, they, they gave out of their surplus. This woman gave all that she had. I've always wondered what the rest of that story was. What blessing did she get because she gave God all? Yeah, you know, I'm sure she didn't go go off and die. She gets a penny. Well, but that would be a blessing if she was. Well, that would be true too. <laughs> so the widow, the, the widow of Zarephath, you know, Elijah called her and said, "You've got enough to feed you and your your child one last meal. Give me something first. You know, she's probably thinking, "Well, I got enough for a small cake for me and my 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 child, and you want me to make you." Something, I won't have anything left over. But she had enough faith to step out and give him food and never ran out until the harvest time that finally got there after the, after the famine. She could have decided, uh-uh, no way, I, there's not enough food for me and my son, so we're just going to make ours and we're going to die. And yet, because he said to do it, she was obedient and she made it through the entire famine with the little little cup of flour in the bottom of the... <laughs> and a little tiny bit of oil that never ended. Okay, We need to be careful sometimes and say, God, what is it you want me to do? How am I going to step out in faith? A little is much when God's in it. And you can have a great abundance if God's not in it, it's not going to satisfy. You know, God, I've got everything I thought I ever wanted. You know, I've got my great big mansion, I've got my cars, I've got my servants, I've got the pool, I've got the tenant, whatever, whatever your imagination is for everything. God, I've got it all, but I'm not happy. And we know that that happens. Many of our celebrities are that way. How do we know? Their drug addictions, their alcoholism, they're, they're, they're blowing their brains out because they're just not happy anymore. You know. And we go, well, you had everything. How could you not be happy? Because everything won't make you happy if God's not in it. If God's not there, everything won't make you. And I've heard many people, well, I'd be willing to try. Well, you'll fail just like everybody else who's had it. You know, so we need to be careful. If God's not in it, it doesn't matter what we have. If God's in it, it doesn't matter how little we have. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you that you love the world and that you've gathered the world together to be yours. And we just thank you for that. You created us. You've provided for salvation for us. We ask that you go out with us as we go about our business. In Jesus' name, amen.